0: You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelser. Robert, for those who haven't come across you online, tell us your name and tell our listeners why we're talking today.
1: My name is Robert Popovian. I am a clinical pharmacist with training and I have a degree in pharmaceutical economics and policy. I've been uh, dealing with healthcare policy issues and healthcare economic issues for the last 20 plus years. I'm currently employed at Pfizer as a vice president for the US government relations team. And really what we wanna discuss today is drug pricing, spending, affordability, and access, which is all intertwined, but something that is extremely opaque and very difficult for both policymakers as well as consumers and patients and employers to understand. You're looking at it from the side of ultimately the people that would price the drug, right? Absolutely. And you're correct. I mean, manufacturer definitely prices the drug, but what people don't understand commonly is that there's a lot that goes into pricing and then just setting the price and uh, that there's a lot of choices that are made external to the pharmaceutical industry, external external to the manufacturer that influences the price. And the reason being is that when you look at the drug pricing and spending spending issue in the United States, a lot of people benefit from the drug prices that are set. It's not just the manufacturer. So the manufacturer sets the price and gets the lion's share of that price. But 50% goes somewhere else. So people like hospitals, insurers, pharmacy benefit managers... Uh, pharmacies, wholesalers, physicians, um, you know, a- agents, uh, brokers—all of these people benefit from the price that is set. So every time a price increase takes place, all of those parties that I mentioned make more money. Yeah, and including stockholders, right? absolutely and shareholders which is part of pharma that's why i meant like the pharmaceutical industry takes the lion's share that's i consider the shareholders as part of the pharmaceutical industry
0: from the most basic view when i think about somebody setting a price let's say that i am going to be selling a new widget out in the market it seems to me that i'm going to be comparing that price to Other similar products Mm -hmm. and that I'm going to hope to price it somewhere in there where maybe I can make it a little bit more attractive or give it more benefits to make it more attractive Mm -hmm. and then hopefully make a profit. But a lot of it doesn't seem to have to do with my costs. It really seems to do with where I can situate that in the market. And if I get to situate it in a good place, that's great because I can make more profit than a percentage of the cost. Is that right? It's kind of the old supply and demand? It
1: is. It should be. It's theoretically it should be that, right? And that's what economists believe that that's how you set prices is that you capitalize on the market and basically maximize your profitability. Unfortunately, in the pharmaceutical industry, and it's just not the pharmaceutical industry in the healthcare industry, we have third parties that sort of mitigate those prices and influence those prices. And in the case of pharmaceutical industries, the pharmacy benefit managers and the insurers. And the generally speaking, if a price is set in the marketplace, then consumers, which happens to be patients or employers or, you know, they, they, Analyze and decide which price is the best, and they take the, the 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 product that they want. In the pharmaceutical industry, it's a little bit complicated because you have two learned intermediaries between the consumer and the. Uh, pharmaceutical industry. You have the physician who prescribes the drug, and then you have the pharmacist who dispenses the drug. So those are the learning intermediaries. And then you have a third party, which is a contracting intermediary in between the consumer's price and individual what individual pays, and that's the pharmacy benefit manager or the insurer. So it makes things complicated, and it becomes even more complicated by the contracting tactics that are employed Uh, by uh, the pharmacy benefit managers and insurers. So instead of contracting just based on a net price, which is like you negotiate a price and that's the price you pay, they negotiate based on a rebate and how much kickback and concessions they receive. And really, if you look at the industry, the placement within formularies, and your, your audience is probably familiar with formularies, is really dependent on how much rebates you give the insurer or the pharmacy benefit manager has little to do with the price of the medicine, actually.
0: All right. So, Robert, when people think about pricing, then everybody always wants to complain about something. People don't seem to want to complain about movie prices or car prices. They want to complain about medical prices because they don't want to spend it. In all the roles that you have had, who do you find yourself defending the most, and who do you find yourself making the bad guy the most?
1: So there, there's no bad guy here or a good guy. I think what you have is a very complicated system that's been set up by intermediaries between... The consumer and the pharmaceutical industry with regards to pricing because of a profit maximizing capabilities. So it's really a t- tactic that's being employed. I don't necessarily think there's a bad or bad guy or a good guy. It's the tactics that are being employed by certain parties who don't bring any kind of value to the system but maximize on the profitability of certain prices that are set.
0: If it's legal, and it's well, people have different views of what ethics are. But if it's let's say that it's legal people are going to tend to want to make as much money as they can. That's the
1: American way. And nobody's doing anything illegal here. What they're doing is they're uh, taking advantage of a the system. Therefore, hence, it's important for the government to step in and eliminate some of the lo- loopholes that exist. And they tried, right? Two years ago, the federal government to Health and Human Services and Alex Azar tried to eliminate uh, rebate contracting, which is, to me the starting point of what what you need to do to really address drug pricing in the United States. And what he tried to do is to call it, it remove the, the, the protection as a kickback from being a rebate. So they uh, initially, when rebate contracting was put in place, they had some protection from Medicare as from the anti-kickback statute. And what Alex Azar tried to do is remove that protection and make it a kickback, and make it that it's illegal to do rebate contracting. And in fact, he there was a lot of other things that he was trying to do to fix the system. It's a starting point. And nobody says that rebates go away, that you're going to have a better system. I think what it is, it's the first step into creating a less opaque pricing mechanism.
0: When you have rebates, you're able to pull a lot of money into the system still. You're able to maybe keep copays high and maybe keep insurance premiums high and maybe have the employer still put money in there. So it gets the money in there, but then the rebates allow that extra money in the system to go to certain places, it seems.
1: Right. The best way to think about it is that if you have a drug that is $100 net, right, versus a drug that is $200 net, but The $200 drug gives a 50% rebate. The insurer, the PBM, is always going to benefit from utilizing the $200 with the 50% rebate to their benefit, even though the net cost is the same than the $100 net. The reason being is that, one, they keep a percentage of that rebate, however minuscule we want to make it, you know, 3%, 4%, 5%, whatever you want to make it. But in addition, as soon as you start doing rebate contracting, there's another phenomenon that takes place, which is fees and everything else come into play. So they start charging fees for placement of formularies or data sharing. Some of them are legitimate fees and some of them are illegitimate fees. And that also, they keep 100% of that. So that's very important for people to know. So when a pharmacy benefit manager or an insurer says, Look, we share 99.5% of the rebates with the employers or uh, whoever the plan sponsor happens to be. They're actually telling the truth. The problem is that there's a slew of fees and everything else and chargebacks that go in behind the scenes that are accompanying the rebates. And those are kept 100% by the pharmacy benefit manager and not shared with the third parties. that influences the pharmacy world the retail pharmacy world through dir fees that's what part of that is also is the fees that they charge and if you believe the data and you look at for example the data that was published by uh a think tank in washington dc think tank the fees actually have been increasing faster as a growth than the rebates rebates are flat as a percentage what happens is that the rebate the fees are going up And in that case, none of those dollar amounts are shared with the plan sponsor. And that's that's why you see, Michael, a lot of states and the federal government trying to pass legislation to say they want accountability of every single dollar and concession that is given by pharma companies to the third parties. And a lot of states have passed these laws, and it's becoming more and more evident that not all of these dollars are being shared back with the plan sponsors.
0: It's kind of like when I go to buy a car and and the car place says, we're going to sell to you at invoice cost. It's like, we know you're making something on this. You can call it whatever you want to. I ain't no genius, Robert, but it seems simple enough that instead of years ago saying, we want there to be more clear, less opaque rebates. It seems like they would have known that the PBMs would simply just change the name. All right. We're not going to call it rebates. We're going to call it fees. All right. All right. Well, you can't have fees. Okay. Well, it's no longer called fees. It's called, you know, some other name. Why do they think now that just by expanding the language to call it everything, not just rebates, weren't they smart enough 10 years ago to include it to say, all right, we're not just talking rebates. We're talking anything that comes back. Was that like a surprise that the PBMs were going to call it something else and try to get
1: around it? Uh, I don't think it was a surprise, but I don't think anybody anticipated that it would get so out of control. And the reason it's gotten out of control is two twofold. One is genericizing of the market. So if you think about it, When I started in the pharmaceutical industry in the late 90s, um, generics only constituted about 60% of the market. You know, 6 out of 10 prescriptions were generic. Today, it's about above 90%. So, 9 out of 10 prescriptions are generic. So, there's less money to be made from the pharma end, right? Because the consolidation on the, you're basically making your money on 10% of the prescriptions now rather than 40% of the prescriptions. The second thing is that there's consolidation on the pharmacy benefit management side, where there used to be multiple pharmacy benefit managers when I started in this industry. Now there's the big three or four that almost control 80 or 90% of the market. So because of those two reasons, they're able to rewrite the rules and also to expand the rules. In addition, you know, as the employers got wiser about pharmacy benefits and they demanded that PBMs share or give them an accounting or share all of the rebates, they simply started redefining these terms so they don't have to share all those do- dollar amounts with them. So I think people were aware of it, but they didn't realize how it would progress so, so much.
0: Now, why won't they do that again, though? Why won't they say, all right, Robert and Mike came up with this great list of all these different descriptions of what we're going to call it. Won't they just
1: switch it again? Won't they just find some other way to do it? Sure, they would. And that's why I said it's the first step to make it less opaque. It's not the it's not the end and be all. And, you know, Alex Azar and Health and Human Services, to their credit, If you looked at what the rule was trying to do last two years ago when they introduced it, one, it was going to eliminate rebate contracting. But more importantly, because what it was going to do is basically remove the anti-kickback statute from it. But more importantly, it was going to require that the fees are a set fee, not a percentage. That's another problem. Right now, the fees that are charged just like dirs are a percentage of the retail price of the medicine which makes no sense right because nobody pays the retail price but it is a percent percentage of retail price and secondly what and the third thing he was trying to do through that regulation and most importantly was trying to identify what are the fees and only allow legitimate fees to move forward so you had to actually put forward fees that you were charging the pharmaceutical industry or pharmacies that were legitimate and not just call it a fee for any reason.
0: Pharmacists are used to not even having percentages of just having like open fees, like these contracts that pharmacists sign. It's like we'll call it a fee, but it'll be whatever we want. It to <laughs> you will be, find basically. out six months later. <laughs> it's like the old healthcare bill that the the big uh, Affordable Care Act when they said, "Ah, oh, just sign it," and you'll find out later. You'll find out later what's inside of it.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, Robert, just to make it clear for me. Mm -hmm. and for our listeners, although they're smarter than I am, we said there's not good guys and bad guys, but let's maybe define it this way. Who seems to be scoring more points in this current system and who seems to be not scoring as many points? The pharmacists seem to be losing. the, Mm -hmm. The little old ladies seem to be losing. The seem to be on the winning side. Right now, where do you think people are falling in this game sure. of pricing right now?
1: Well, let's start with who's losing. Um, patients are com- absolutely, certain patients are absolutely being hurt by the current system. They're way overpaying for their medicines. If a patient has a coinsurance or a deductible, which is based on the retail price of the medicine, Uh, Like most of us do now in our pharmacy benefits, you walk into a pharmacy right now, your co-insurance, which is a percentage uh, of what you pay for the price of the medicine or your deductible is based on the retail price, not the negotiated price. And Michael, that's important to note because in every other segment of the healthcare system, that's not the case. When you walk into a hospital or I walk into an optometrist's office or dentist's office or... Uh, physician's office, and if I have a coinsurance or a deductible, my coinsurance or deductible is based on a negotiated price that's been, been done on my behalf by the third party that I'm paying a premium to, which is the insurer or the pharmacy uh, insurer in this case. This is an anomaly that they've convinced everyone that this cannot happen on the pharmacy end, and it's not true. It absolutely can happen. So that's number one. So the patients are absolutely being hurt. And there's certain patients, not everybody.
0: That stumps me a little bit because it seems when the patient comes in that they are paying the negotiated price, but it's an absurd price because it's negotiated on this high retail price and doesn't take into account any of the rebates and things like that. That's what you're saying. It's not like exactly. the it's not like the pharmacists exactly. are just charging whatever they no. want. No. They're charging the patient this in quotes agreed upon price, but it's high and the right. PBMs are never going to pay that because that's where the rebates come in.
1: Absolutely. Let me let me give you a real world example that happened to me about 2 years ago. I went to get some dental work done. And when I showed up to the counter to pay my coinsurance, because it's a percentage, it required a percentage of the fee. So there were three prices. It was the price that the dentist charges normally for some procedure like that, that. The second price was the negotiated price that the dentist had done with Delta Dental at that point. And then my out-of-pocket cost was a percentage of that negotiated price, not the customary price of what they were being charged. So in the That's what happened in dentists, and that's how it should work. In the pharmacy side, patient shows up and has a percentage they have to pay as a coinsurance or a deductible to fit. They pay that customary retail charge, which is significantly higher than the negotiated price, as we know. It's higher
0: than the negotiated price because of the rebates is
1: that right rebates fees concessions everything
0: they're paying a fake negotiated price basically
1: right yeah, it's not even negotiated i call it a retail price it's basically anybody that walks in that they can get that price you know it's it's basically paying msrp on a car rather than the invoice price like you mentioned You know, as a percentage or or paying for it. So that's the patients. And I want to make this clear. Not every patient is being hurt. Actually, if you look at out-of-pocket costs for general population, out-of-pocket costs for medicines have been dropping over the last 10 years in real dollars. That means you and I today are paying less on average, on average out-of-pocket for medicines than we were paying 10-15 years ago. And that's primarily driven because of the genericizing the market, you know. Uh, Think about it. I'm on a statin right now. And if I was paying for a statin 10 years ago, where they were all branded medicines, I would have paid more for out-of-pocket than today, where they're all generics, and I pay less. So, uh, that's one example. So genericizing the market has helped that. But there's a small percentage of patients that require the more expensive medicines. And not necessarily they're sicker. It's just a different disease state that requires a medicine that is not generic. That majority of patients are doing fine is the small percentage of patients that are really being hurt. And those are that they require these more expensive brand name medicines right now through the system. So that's who's being hurt is the patient. The second group that's being absolutely hurt are the real payers in the marketplace so there are three payers in the marketplace currently it's patients who open their wallets and pay for their medicines and pay for premiums the second part party is the employers because employers provide uh, more than 50 or close to 50 percent of the coverage for healthcare in the united states and then it's the government it's the federal government basically and and the state governments who pay for it insurers and pbms are not payers We misidentify middlemen and really uh, paper pushers as payers. They're not payers. They're just the intermediaries, and that's all they are. And the real payers are the patients, the employers, and uh, the the government itself, because those are the ones that actually open their wallets and open their checkbooks and open their budgets and pay for a healthcare system.
0: People mistake insurers as payers if someone has a huge cancer bill at a company that There's a slight chance that they might pay out a little bit extra this year, but you'll be sure that they're going to raise their premiums to collect that next year. They might put out a temporary loan, but they're not taking a hit ever.
1: It's not coming out of their pockets. It's not coming out of their budgets. It's not coming out of anything. So patients are being hurt. Employers are being hurt significantly because they don't know where every dollar goes either. You know, that's what... they want accounting of every single dollar that's collected as a concession and a fee from the pharmaceutical industry. And they want to know exactly where that money goes. Uh, and the same thing applies to states and federal government. They don't have it either. They assume they do because what they see is the numbers that are given to them by the pharmacy benefit managers and the insurers, but they're not 100% sure about that. And I can guarantee you, even if, because remember, pharmacy in the pharmacy world, exists in two levels of coverage. One is the retail pharmacies, what you walk into a, uh, you know, community pharmacy or a chain drugstore, pick up your medicines. That's what we call outpatient retail pharmacy. Then there's this whole pharmaceutical business that is more the infusion business, the f- hospital uh, infusion, the physician infusion business, which is co- is covered through medical policy. It's not even covered through pharmacy policy, pharmacy benefits. And we don't even know what's going on in there. And employers are frustrated and they want to know where it's going. So the same thing applies to uh, the government. Government doesn't know where they're going, whether they're getting all the concessions or not. And uh, that's why a lot of states are passing legislation. Georgia did it last year. Louisiana did it a couple of years ago to get an accounting of every single dollar collected and every single dollar that's passed through to the client sponsor. And that includes the state governments. Okay, so those are the losers. The winners are basically the intermediaries that benefit from the system. And you see how adamant they are about not changing the system currently. Uh, it's the pharmacy benefit managers, is the insurers, is the brokers, because a lot of people don't understand. A lot of broker fees are based on how much rebate contracting is negotiated. So brokers are also involved in this and um i don't want to toot my horn but i wrote an article uh about two months ago that said the 12 steps that ins- that employers can take to protect their employees from overpaying and one of them is about brokers what how are your broker fees set up because when the broker shows up to the employer's office and tries to pitch them on an idea about uh, benefit uh, you know to a x y and z insurer or pharmacy benefit manager. You should ask the employer or the broker, how are you being compensated? Because I can tell you, uh, and for full disclosure, I am on a board of advisors for a pharmacy benefit manager. That's why I said there are no good guys and bad guys. There are good PBMs out there that are trying to do the right thing. And I am on a board of advisor of one of those pharmacy benefit managers. There are multiple ones, but they can't get their foot through the door through these brokers because they don't pay the exorbitant broker fees or they don't negotiate just like the big three PBMs do with the brokers, to get them through the door. So they never get any airtime. But when you talk individually with these pharmacy benefit managers, you realize, and this is a, a, a word that a lot of your listeners will know, per member per month, they have the one of the lowest costs in the pharmacy world. But they, they, they don't get any coverage. Nobody talks to them because the brokers don't represent them, because they don't pay the fees. When pharmacies look at
0: PBMs, we look at them like there's only three, but the truth of it is we should look at the PBMs like we want our customers to look at pharmacy choices. There's more than just the three or four big chains. There's all kinds of independence, but the PBMs want you thinking that there's only, you know,
1: three of them. Yeah. And the brokers do a good job of, uh, representing that because they get paid higher fees and negotiated fees based on how they represent and the two three pbms that are trying to do the right thing and really streamline the process and have the patients benefit and they do 100 percent pass through that means that every dollar they, they collect they pass it back to the plan sponsor without question and they do it based on a flat fee which is reasonable because you should charge a fee for a service i mean nobody's saying they shouldn't be charging a fee uh, but they do it based on a flat fee. So,
0: where does the manufacturers fit in this then?
1: About ten years ago, manufacturers were able to set their prices, and they would demand those prices because there was little or lo- very little competition in the marketplace. And there, and now because of what I said, the consolidation on the pharmacy benefit manager side, and also genericizing the market, they have very little. To do with the, phar- in fact, for every dollar sold on average by the pharmaceutical industry, about they collect only 54 cents or 60, uh, 55 cents out of the dollar. The 45 cents disappears in the supply chain, wherever that goes. So what is the manufacturer's role is to be more transparent and honest about how they price their medicines. I don't think we've done a good enough job of explaining how we price our medicines. And I think that's also given birth to a whole slew of businesses out there that are trying to define what the price should be, such as ICER, NICE, ICWIC in Germany. These entities exist only because pharmaceutical industry has not done a good job of explaining their pricing methodology
0: in a transparent manner. Let me play devil's advocate for the manufacturers. I don't really care how the manufacturers price their medicine as long as there's clarity of what they're truly charging, you know, because if a a drug company wants to charge a million dollars for a tablet and truly charging a million dollars per tablet, I kind of think the market will take care of itself by maybe formularies not choosing them and, you know, insurance is not choosing them and so on. As long as that's a real price. So for me, it seems like the more important matter is not so much how drugs are priced, but are they priced that way across the board or at least priced across the board, allowing for bulk purchases. If someone purchases more, I think they allowed to have a discount and so on. But the rebates, I think, is the problem. So that devil's advocate on the side of the manufacturer.
1: Yeah. And you're right. But I think manufacturers have a responsibility to explain how they came up with the price. Because if not, if they don't do that, the problem is that other parties then will step in and do it for them. And the reason being is, I go back to our original comment, is because healthcare and pharmaceuticals in the United States is not paid by the consumer directly, right? It's paid by a third party intermediary. And the third party intermediary can be the insurer PBM, but most often is the government and the employer too, right? We don't have a true uh, marketplace like television sets where you walk into Costco and buy the television set that you desire and the price is the price you want to pay and you ne- either negotiate or you price compare. That doesn't exist in the healthcare system. So because of that reason, I think there's been uh, and the lack of understanding of how medicines are priced and being transparent about that discussion. Uh, you see that there are third parties that exist now that are saying, well, well, no, no, the price is not shouldn't be a thousand dollars. It should be nine hundred and ninety-five dollars. And nobody can explain why nine ninety-five or why a thousand. You know, and so we need to do a better job on our end to be able to have a less opaque system. And I have to tell you, I mean. The net pricing or net price contracting exists in the marketplace currently. We're not talking about some, uh, you know, uh, reattaching neurons here or UFOs coming from third, third world. As I said, in other entities within the healthcare system, like everything else, patients and consumers pay based on the net price or the negotiated price. But same thing exists on the insurer side. There are insurers out there besides pharmacy benefit managers, actually negotiate based on net price. They don't do rebate contracting. Kaiser Permanente is one of them. They don't have a pharmacy benefit manager that they employ. They don't do rebate contracting. They just do net price contracting. And it works out. So it can be done if willingness is to be done. But there's too much money being made currently in the system for people to change that uh, their desire of changing the model. And I can guarantee you, Kaiser Permanente probably gets the lowest prices of any pharma company, from any of the pharma companies. And, you know, they don't need rebate contracting to get to that net price. They negotiate based on a net price. They just say, I don't want rebates. I'm not going to pay you fees. Just give me, I'm going to pay you $100 for this $200 medicine. That's it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you $200 and you rebate back to me $100 and then I." charge a bunch of fees because of all this back and forth. They just say, I'm just going to take it for $100, and that's it. Kaiser, they're an insurance or a PBM? Well, they're both, They're not really a PBM. They're an insurer and a staff model insurer, but they're also a, a provider at the same time. But the, the trick is that Kaiser also basically has a network of pharmacies outside Kaiser that patients can go, retail pharmacies, both community and also chain pharmacies, that patients can go and get their medicines. For those medicines, they're not paying anymore. If the patient ends up going to the retail pharmacies, it's a negotiated price that they reimburse those pharmacies and it's a net price. So there are no DIR fees and all these other nonsense that goes on. So Mike, my, my point is we can do it if we, the willingness was there to do it, you know, because we know it can be done in other parts of the healthcare system. We know that there are good PBMs out there trying to do the right thing. We know there are insurers that don't necessarily need to negotiate based on rebate contracting. So the model exists. It's just, are we willing to change the model to benefit the patients and the real payers, which are the patients, uh, employers and the government?
0: Tell us again your role
1: at Pfizer. I currently work with Pfizer at, as government relations, but government relations is government affairs is such a ambiguous term, right? It's such a, uh, what I, what I tell people is that I'm the person who communicates externally with audiences with regards to what policy issues and drug pricing and policy issues and the reason that individuals like talking to me is because I can bring the conversation from multiple angles. I can bring it from a policy angle because I have the policy background. I can bring it from an economics angle because I have the economics degree. But I'm also a clinician. I was a pharmacist and a clinical clinically trained pharmacist. So I know how patients, I've, I've taken care of patients, not for a long time, but I've dealt with that. I've, I was in medical affairs, so I've done clinical trials. I've done research. So I can talk about it. And the biggest benefit that pharmacists have, and most most of your audience or pharmacists would understand this, is that... We are trained to make things simpler for patients. That's why people like talking to me because I have a tendency to talk and make complex issues very simple.
0: Even I can understand them, I think. (laughs) (laughs) We're not done here yet, but (laughs) (laughs) when you say talking to people, what people in your role at Pfizer, Mm -hmm. who are you talking to, for example?
1: I talk to everyone. I talk to legislators, policymakers, state and federal. Uh, I talk to patient organizations, provider groups, which includes pharmacy associations, medical societies. Uh, I talk to poli- uh, think tanks, uh, which I, I don't know if you know what a think tank is, but they do a lot of the policy work behind the scenes, both on the federal and the state level. I So I communicate with a wide array of people and organizations and individuals, and I'm very active on uh, social media. Um and also both on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, I do a lot of public publications. I have a, uh, I try to keep up a monthly column in Morning Consult uh, that I talk about policy issues relevant to the pharmaceutical industry. And um, so I write and publish a lot of papers. We just published a paper. I just published a paper with a co-author of mine, Wayne Weingarten, from the Pacific Research Institute, looking at rebate contracting and an impact on patients' out-of-pocket costs. Uh, and we're trying to submit that now to a journal, a peer-reviewed journal, that was published to Pacific Research Institute. So I do a lot of different uh, discussions, and I, I'm able, I'm quickly able to switch from being a clinician to an economist, to a policy expert, to a patient advocate quickly, and that helps. As simply as you
0: can put it,
1: why is Pfizer paying you? Why is Pfizer paying me is because it's gotten to a point that, uh, as I always said, I would not have any kind of um, sympathy for the industry if they were collecting 100% of the revenue. So for every dollar sold, they were collecting 90, 95, 100%. Uh, but the pharmaceutical industry is at the point that they're collecting about 50% of the revenue but getting 100% of the political pushback the reality is that that was true about 10 15 20 years ago when i started in the industry and you know at that point you're you put on your big boy pants and you know you get all of the revenue if you you're getting it and you try to justify it but now it's unjustifiable because they're not getting it and they're getting 100% of the politicians coming after them uh saying they're the problem and Uh, Really, it's not just the politicians. There's a misunderstanding among provider community, in the pharmacy community, especially in the medical community, in the patient organizations. They don't understand this stuff because all they see is pharma industry increases prices by 7 to 10%. And when you peel the onion, you realize that most companies in the last four or five years, they've had negative growth on their pricing. So for every percentage of the increase of price, actually, it's a negative. That they gained from that price increase, because they're giving more away in concessions, they're giving more away in rebates, they're giving more away in fees, they're expanding their patient assistance program, which is a whole other area that pharma, pharma companies didn't anticipate happening uh, until a few years ago with the uh, with programs like accumulators and maximizers that exist now in the marketplace. So that's why Pfizer pays me.
0: So, Robert, you're basically doing what pharmacists do all day. And it goes something like this, where the customer comes in and says, boy, I should own stock in this pharmacy. I'm here so much. Boy, it must be nice taking all my money. Well, then the pharmacist are good at this. First, they, they laugh. Yeah, we're taking all your money. That's why I'm talking to you here instead of Hawaii. And that's why you're going to see my, my old Chevy out in a parking lot instead of my fancy uh, Bugatti. And so basically you're trying to put realism into people and saying we're doing our best or we're, we're trying to be fair and we're all in this together. We're on your side kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think pharmacists, physicians get a bad rap. And so the pharmaceutical industry, I think in some cases it's deserved. In some cases, it's not because they're definitely both on the physician pharmacist, and pharmaceutical industry side. They're bad actors that take advantage of the market and they do bad things and they should be called out and they should be punished. But more or less, I think physicians, pharmacists, and the pharmaceutical industry is doing, trying to do the right thing. And whether it's innovate, take care of patients, uh, and get medicines out to the, to the market that are really going to make a difference in the patient's lives. But, uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. They're, they're getting the short end of the stick because they're the ones that are facing the patients whether it's the pharmacist or the physician or the pharmaceutical industry for all of the things and nobody understands how this happened. And it it didn't happen overnight, Michael. This thing took time. It's just that what I say is that everybody was comfortable. There's still people comfortable with the current system. They're making a lot of money and they don't want any changes to be done to it. But the reality is that patients are hurting and the real pairs, which are the patients, employers and the and the government is really uh, not benefiting from the current system.
0: I imagine, uh, Robert, that you as a manufacturer are also a target because it seems like nowadays no one usually makes the pharmacist the target anymore. They see them working hard in, in the community and that kind of stuff. Most people don't target the doctors. Most people don't Probably unfairly, they do not target the brokers because the brokers they know and things like that. They probably don't target the insurance companies because they do their marketing and they show how we're going to take care of you and all that kind of stuff and help you join a gym and all this kind of stuff. And the average person doesn't really know who the PBM is. And so they can't target them. And if they did target them, the PBMs going to turn around and point their finger at you guys, you know, so you guys are an easy target. And the biggest arrows coming your way, I imagine, is it from the PBM? PBMs? Do they try to throw rocks at you guys? And what are those rocks and how do you respond to those?
1: Well, the way they, they say it, and it's true, they say that the pharmaceutical industry sets the price that everybody pays for, right? And that's absolutely true. We set the price. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You can go up and down sideways. We set the price. But I think what the pharmaceutical industry doesn't do a good job is exactly what I was talking about is explain how that price was set. You know, we just don't pull this price out of the thin air right? and put it into uh, as the product price. There's a lot of work that's done to evaluate the market, that's evaluated a lot of the um, competition, the patient ac- accessibility, but there's also how much rebates we have to pay, how many uh, competitors are there so the rebates keep going up, how much fees we have to pay. Uh, how many prior authorizations and step therapies we have to face before the product gets used. So there's a lot more that goes into it. And I blame the pharmaceutical industry to a certain effect that they haven't done a good job of explaining how they came up with the price that they do. You know, And that's what opened up the door for the PBM industry, rightfully saying, you set the price. So we need to be, yeah, we set the price, but this is how the price was set. And there's more to it than just... uh, profit maximizing.
0: Seems like if I'm a manufacturer, I mean, the reason I'm paying my pharmacists X thousand dollars a year is because the competition's paying them X thousand a year. And the reason I have my aspirin priced at such and such is because the competition has that such and such. So if I'm a manufacturer probably the easiest example I can think of is if I'm coming out with a smoking cessation tablet, some miracle drug, and I know cigarettes are 12 bucks a day if you smoke a couple packs, something like that. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. I'm going to make my price probably about 10 to $14 a day for my smoking cessation aid. So it seems like that is almost like a no-brainer. I guess where you have to come in is like, well, sometimes it's not 12 to 14 Sometimes it's $30 for that smoking cessation aid. And that's where a lot of that baloney comes in of the fees and the rebates and the prior authorization problems and things like that.
1: Exactly. And that's why the market doesn't work. Because right now, the market set up, the way it's set up, right? It benefits people who come up with high prices and higher rebates than vice versa. So there are multiple examples of companies that are out there have brought out products that are lower priced compared to the competition. I'm not talking about 5% either 20, 30, 40, 50% lower price. And they can't get a light of day because all they hear from the pharmacy benefit managers and the insurers is that go increase your prices, give me more rebates, then we can talk. Because that's what drives placement on formularies. It's not really the price, the net price of these medicines. It's really how much rebates they're collecting. So I'll give you an example. This is you can go do the research yourself. Hep C drugs, which you know it was it was a groundbreaking medicine, innovative medicine that came out about five six years ago that really changed the way we uh, we treated hepatitis C patients. And it was a cure. So Gilead got a lot of accolades for bringing it out and also a lot of grief for pricing it as they did. But the reality was that within a year when competition came out from other companies, the price that people were quoting, which was $84,000, I think, for treatment course was really not 84,000 because we knew that they were rebating about 50% of the bag, so it was really half the price. But Gilead went a step further. About two years ago, three years ago, they came out with what they called an authorized generic, which they priced at about 75% less than the brand name medicine. So now you assume in a regular marketplace, this is an authorized generic coming out of the same pharmaceutical company would be preferred by the insurers and the pharmacy benefit managers compared to the brand name drug. That's not the case. If you look at the formularies that are set for 2021 and 2020 by a couple of the larger PBMs in this country, what you will notice is that they exclude the authorized generic coverage, that they're not covered, while they cover the brand name medicine. It just doesn't make inherent sense.
0: It doesn't make sense. And the problem is, as I think you were saying earlier, is – When someone has either not hit their deductible or they're in the donut hole, it's at least 75% more than it should be because there's an authorized generic and the patient directly is suffering when they're paying it on their own. And then it turns to the employer the patient is going to suffer, too, by maybe not getting a raise or not getting money put in their retirement or maybe losing their
1: job. Exactly. And the assumption is from the employer that, let's say, let's bring up the hep C example, right? So you're a patient that has a coinsurance or a deductible. You walk into the pharmacy. And your coinsurance deductible will be based on the $84,000. Forget about the authorized generic. We're, t- we're not even talking about the authorized generic. But your yours will be based on $84,000 rather than the negotiated one, which is closer to probably the price of the authorized generic, right, which is about $24,000. So that's the number one. You're overpaying as a consumer. That's right there, the problem. The second assumption is that the employer then will collect the difference, right, between the $84,000 and $25,000. That's not true. Because we know even though they may get 90-plus percentage of the rebates, they're not getting all the fees and everything else, and we know that the fees are becoming a larger percentage of the concessions. Therefore, they're not even benefiting from it. What you're saying, Robert, is sometimes the
0: employer would get that rebate. They would get it.
1: Most often they do.
0: If it was a rebate.
1: Yeah, if it was a rebate, truly rebate. So that's why I say when the pharmacy benefit managers stand up and testify and they say, We pass on 99% of the rebates. They're actually being truthful. They're telling the truth. They are passing the rebates, but not everything else that they collect. And that everything else is growing at a faster pace than the rebates are. That's the problem. So employers not benefiting from it. So who's benefiting is really the people who are in the middle. The more opaque you make the system, the more complicated you make the system, there's more ob- ability to make money off of the system. Where there's mystery, there's margin. Exactly. So, the less that's why people don't like the net price contracting. That's why people like Kaiser, who don't work that way, they don't have a pharmacy benefit manager, who they don't have a middleman, they're the insurer and the provider at the same time. They just say, give me the net price. That's it. I'm just going to pr- contract based on the net price of the drug, not all this other nonsense of rebating fees and everything else.
0: If you could have one job anywhere in the world, whether it's the president of a certain company, the president of the United States, the head of commerce, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you could do anything you wanted to do, one, what job would you take for a year to try to make the most impact? And number two, what would you
1: do? Well, I, w- I would like to be in a position that we can change the model, the way we price and contract drugs in the United States. So clearly it's it starts with the health and human services because the government is the one of the largest payers. So working for health and human services is really to do Uh, be the drug pricing czar, or somebody who understands drug pricing, to be able to change the model. Because you have to do HHS first, and then the private sector will follow. You need to do both, but you need to start somewhere. And the government has the big bully pulpit uh, to be able to do it. Uh, What I would do is start off with eliminating what, what Secretary Azar wants to do, which is eliminate rebate contracting. That's the starting point. That's where we start. For me, it's other things need to be done. Patients need to know what they're going to pay out of pocket the minute they walk into any kind of service that they are getting. And, you know, I get the pushback always publicly that, well, if you have a aneurysm, you're not going to shop around, you know, you're going to go to the emergency room. I get that. There are services that clearly the patient is never going to shop around. They're not going to look around for it. But there are other alternatives services such as you know when you need to do a joint replacement or you need to get a certain medicine that you can shop around if you know your out-of-pocket cost is going to be and you can go to a to a different pharmacy or different uh, provider and get those services done. So that's another thing that I would do is to make sure that patients the consumer knows upfront what their out of pocket cost is going to be period no mystery nothing else they will, they know exactly what they're going to pay for the medicine in your definition of that
0: would you define pharmacy patients as knowing that in a community setting
1: or is that like only after the fact no it has to be upfront it has to be upfront the patient needs to know what they're going to pay out of pocket before they walk into a pharmacy to pick up their medicine.
0: You're saying by the time that they're standing at the counter and you say, well, do you want this for $500 or don't you, that's too late? That's too late.
1: It's too late. The other thing that we need to do in this marketplace with pharmaceuticals is that we have a, we have a very competitive generic market, and this is where pharmacies come in. And I've tweeted on this and I've written on it quite a bit on LinkedIn. And I get a lot of positive feedback from retail pharmacies, especially community pharmacies. In this country, we have a very competitive generic market. We have one of the lowest generic prices in anywhere in the world because we have an open com- competition where there is no floor for pricing versus other countries in XUS, they actually have floors for their generics. We need to have a transparent, competitive cash marketplace for generic medicines. And we don't have one. Good RX is not the answer, nor are any of these programs like Amazon brought out last week. Hopefully they'll go further. That's going to, to do that. There are a couple of examples out there, uh, that do competitive cash pricing, including some community pharmacists who have shifted their entire business to a cash business. And what happens is that, and I'm convinced of this, that the healthcare system will pay less the patient will pay less and the pharmacists and the people who are providing the, they will make more money. So it's a win, win, win situation where people pay less, the system pays less, but people that actually are are dispensing the medicines and utilizing the medicines are going to make more money off of it. We don't have that and we need to create that. And there's two reasons why we need to create it. Number one, because of the savings I just mentioned. But secondly, we need to take that generic, Part out of the benefit design for insurance to give more head, headway for other more pricey stuff to be covered. Because right now, if you think about it, Michael, in pharmaceuticals, we cover everything that is cheap, 100%. You walk in, your generic is covered. Everything is very low payment, blah, blah, blah. And personally, I think you're probably paying overpaying for your generics. If you paid cash, you probably would pay less using your insurance card most often and that's been proven through research but the second thing is that we don't pay, we don't cover in pharmaceuticals things that are expensive at a high level so it's the opposite of what insurance should be insurance is intended to pay for expensive sort of procedures and things that are anomalies rather than your routine People who are taking a statin per day for the cholesterol type of a thing. But we've flipped it on its head, and we've created a marketplace, that uh, an insurance model that pays for everything that's cheap and nothing that's expensive. And we need to change that.
0: With your car insurance, they don't pay for your gas. They don't pay for your windshield wiper fluid. They don't pay for your new tires. You cover that because it's a known expense. It's not an anomaly. It's not really... Insurance. Now, here's another thought though. Maybe if they do pay for some things, I don't know if this argument's any good, but let's just say that car insurance paid for windshield wiper fluid or something because people were getting into crashes because their windshields were dirty and it's so cheap that let's kind of throw that in there as a bonus. But yeah, I, mainly on that first point, I agree. It's like they're insuring stuff that's not meant to be insured,
1: really. So let me give you an example. The car, uh, so the insurance, most car insurances actually cover if you have, uh, like windows shattered, right? If your window shattered, they actually pay for that and they have somebody that comes in. The reason they do that is because it's a safety concern, right? Because if you're driving with a shattered window that it could ex- fall off, something can be damaged something you can talk about maybe what we need to think about is that stuff that is communicable diseases for example vaccines is a good example right if we pay for vaccines because vac- taking a vaccine just doesn't in- impact you as an individual it impacts your neighbor it impacts your family because if you don't have the infection you're not passing it on to others maybe we need to think about it in those terms But the cholesterol medicine is a perfect example. If you don't take your cholesterol medicine, the only person you're harming is yourself and the system itself, but it's really harming yourself. It's not a communicable disease, right? So you can make some exceptions that we just talked about, like the cracked windshield versus the uh, vaccine for a communicable disease. And maybe we can cover some of those things. But in general, I believe in the generic medicines. If you take the 100, top 100 generic medicines in the United States, that are prescribed. They make up about 80% of the prescriptions in the US. I guarantee you that if we take that out of the insurance model and put it in a cash competitive where you have an app on your phone, let's say you're prescribed a generic statin and you can go scroll down and find out which pharmacies give it to you for cash for cheaper and go to that pharmacy in your, you know, depending on your driving habits of how far you want to drive. That's what I want to do is take it out of the insurance and put it into a cash model that patients pay cash for it. And at the end of the day, what it will do is that, first of all, the patients will realize that they have more choices, what you started talking about, just like a regular consumer to shop around. And secondly, they can then decide, I can decide if I want to pay $5 and drive five hours to get it, or I want to pay $7 and go to my community pharmacist, or the I feel better to go to the community pharmacist down the street because you know I know Michael who's the pharmacist and I want to go see Michael uh, and talk to him about other things that I may have and I and and I appreciate his service. So I want to pay a couple of dollars extra. But that becomes a consumer choice. Right now, everybody pays the same for generics. You walk into a generic, you pay twenty twenty dollars, fifteen, twenty dollar copayment, and more often than not, that generic medicine is less expensive if you pay for it for cash in a competitive market. And it's happened to every one of us. It's happened to every single one of us. It happened to me twice, both for my wife and my daughter. Uh, most recently, my wife needed a generic non-steroidal, which is for her back pain. So she called me from the pharmacy and said, look, our co-payment for generics through my benefit design is $20. So she called me and she said, look, the pharmacist is saying they don't have our insurance information in their system. So I have to pay cash and the cash price that they're offering is $20 or something or $22. And then she said, but GoodRx, which is not really a cash price, is really what the GoodRx uh, companies do, type of companies do. is just they provide the cash price that an, a PBM would offer. You know, GoodRx is giving to me for $18. I said, time out. Because I knew Pfizer's benefit has a provision in there, which by the way, 50% of employers don't have this provision in their benefit design that I pay what the pharmacist is being reimbursed for that medicine. Okay. If it's below my copayment. So if my copayment is $20 and the price of the reimbursement to the pharmacist is 22, I pay 20. But if it's below that, I pay what he's being, he or she is being reimbursed. And I told them, ask the person the pharmacist to put the information into the system. She ended up paying like $3, walks out of the pharmacy. So she would have overpaid. She would have overpaid, uh, by paying the copayment. If we didn't have that provision in our benefit design, she would have overpaid by using good RX. But at the end of the day, really, what the pharmacist was being reimbursed for that medicine was $3, and she ended up paying $3 and walking out of the pharmacy. It's one of the things that I recommend in my paper is one of the 12 steps that employers should take is to protect their employees from overpaying for their prescription medicines.
0: I don't disagree with your thought about, let's get rid of the insurance for these low-paying things. Is that just to get rid of the layers of the paperwork, the sending sending money? What's the reason
1: for that in your mind? Two reasons. Number one, I truly believe that if I have a transparent cash marketplace for generics, the top 100 generics, that patients would pay less out of pocket for those medicines, pharmacists would make more money, and the healthcare system overall will save more money. So that's the number one thing. And the reason being is that, remember, PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, to make it very simple, make money in two ways. They make money by managing drug benefits through rebate contracting, all these formulary designs and things like that. But they also make money from processing prescriptions. Okay. So for every pros- prescription that they price, they charge. It's not, it's not a lot, but they charge money. So if we remove that from the system, that's less expense that needs to be taken up by employers and employees to be able to, but we need a transparent system first. We need to create something that you know upfront what the cash price of this medicine is, and then you decide whether to use your insurance or not. That doesn't exist right now in a a competitive sense. There are a couple of them out there, a couple of pharmacies, online pharmacies, and one actually is a retail pharmacy that does this and you can actually find out what the cash price is before you use your insurance card. One is roe.com, which is part of Roman. Uh, they started an online pharmacy and it's all cash based. And most, more often than not, the patient is gonna pay less to their, to their pharmacy paying cash than using their insurance card for the generic medicine. They do generic dispensing only. The second part is Costco, which is a retail slash online pharmacy too. Costco does this as well. They have a very competitive cash price marketplace that you can find out online. You can go Google, like what is, I've done it recently, just find out what my cash price of the generic would be for uh, picking up at my local Costco. And we need that, but we need all the pharmacies participating. So then you can really have a competitive marketplace that is transparent and the patient can pick and choose where they go. Even though generic prices have plummeted about 70% in the last 10 years. Consumers only have benefited by about 50% reduction. So 20% of it has disappeared somewhere. And that's what I want to get to is that why can't consumers benefit from the 70% reduction? And we know they can. And it's not the manufacturer as much because the manufacturer of the generics is pretty much competitive and it's rock bottom pricing. It's all the layers you add that makes the generics more expensive. So if we get rid of the layers and where the pharmacist is able to provide a cash transparent price to the patient without the fear, and this is why most pharmacists are unable to do it, and I'll tell you why, is because they're worried about if if you're Mike's pharmacy and you give the price that is cash that is below what you're charging the PBM, then you're worried your PBM reimbursement will cut be cut for that generic. If we remove that completely where there is no coverage by the PBM for cash market for pharmaceuticals, then there is no fear. You, the Mike, can decide what your cash price is for that medicine based on no retaliation, no fear, nothing else, and be able to just put it out there and compete with Robert Popovian's pharmacy down the street or with Walgreens or with CVS. And at the end of the day, that's what we want for consumers.
0: Because the insurance isn't paying for that anyways. Exactly. And then the higher price drugs, which probably nobody would be able to afford, there you don't really have to set a cash price because most people aren't going to probably buy it for cash anyways, then you've
1: solved that system. That's a good idea. And you've given more headway or leeway for insurance to cover those medicines because now you're not covering all this other stuff that really doesn't require coverage. I have to tell you, there are pharmacies out there that I know personally that have gone away completely from taking insurance. They just do cash, generic cash, and they're making more money. They're making more money. The consumer walks in as is paying less, but they make more money because they're getting rid of all this middle nonsense.
0: We do that for home medical equipment at our pharmacy. Basically, what I've done in our store with medical equipment is we carry mainly stuff that's under $100 kind of cash and carry. As soon as they're dealing with insurances, they've got to get this, they got to get that. They're paying triple for it. We haven't done that in our pharmacy part, but we've done that in our medical equipment part. And It's easier to do because there's not as much competition in town. So people can't say, well, I'm going to go to Joe's across the street because Joe's might exist as a pharmacy, but it doesn't exist as a medical equipment store.
1: The best way to look at it, I mean, and going back to our initial conversation, there are no bad or good guys in this. I look at the system, the healthcare, the pharmaceutical system that's been set up is just like a parent. Uh, when a child does something wrong, who, who's younger, I'm not talking about teenagers, but when they're younger, you, you can't blame the child. You usually blame the parent and that's why i don't blame the pbms or the insurers or the brokers or the pharmacies or the pharmaceutical industry because the way that the rules are set up with rebate contracting to start off with it's been set up by the federal government to allow this type of activity so they are the parent and they need to step up and they tried it didn't work they've tried again through this now executive order and really fix the model and When the model gets fixed, obviously, Michael, that's not going to be the panacea. It's not going to solve everything. We need to still look out for other things that will come up. But at least it's a starting point to fix the model. Tell me
0: again what you would see as a strong marker... Of change? Is it just the executive order continuing, or is it going to be a new law? Or what are we looking for that I can say, Robert wanted this, and I can sit there and smile because we got what Robert said we should get. What is that that I'm looking for, for that success marker?
1: I think the success marker comes in from the executive order that was signed, but it really goes back to the original regulation that HHS had in mind to institute that got initially put out and then withdrawn. I think we need to go back to that because uh, the original one really eliminated rebate contracting. It fixed the fees issue, which is extremely important, and also legitimized uh, the fees issue, not only not to be a percentage of the retail price, but more importantly, that it would be uh legitimate fees that they can charge so it did three things that people the other last two sort of fell on the radar everybody talked about the rebate contracting but really was fixing a lot of different things so going back to your that would be it is to go back the executive order is a right like sort of first foray into it but more needs to be done but it'd
0: be going back and Putting more language in.
1: And then let me give you another one. And people didn't pay any attention to this. Is that when the regulation was proposed about two years ago, Senator Braun from Indiana actually introduced legislation to fix it on the commercial side. Do the same thing on the commercial end. So both of them need to be done. And I would say if that would be the point that we can see the tide shifting and really fixing the opaqueness of the current pricing model.
0: And I'm I'm pretty crappy on government stuff but basically I know this much that an executive order is not terribly strong because that can be changed by the next administration. Would the stuff that you're talking about, would that be recommended by HHS and then would it go to both houses and then finally be voted on? Is that the process this needs to take?
1: No, the regulation, so the initial regulation that was introduced was going to just change the way that Medicare Part D contracting is done. They can do that through regulation. They don't need legislation. Obviously, doing it through, through legislation is much better. The executive order is even a step further from the regulation is really trying to institute the regulation. So it's like two steps back. But legislation, you're absolutely right. It's the, the best way to fix the system is once and for all is through legislation. And that's why Senator Braun had introduced the legislation to fix it on the commercial side because you can't do it to regulation, right? Because the government is not regulating the commercial payers or private sector. Oh, I see. So to hit the commercial side, if they're dealing with the federal government, you can, right? So if they're part of part Medicare Part D or Medicaid, you can. But you can't do deal with when they're now. You can put parameters on how they do it, but this is what Senator Braun's legislation was trying to do.
0: Don't some of these places? And again, I'm coming at this from a no knowledge on this. Don't some of these places need like licenses to do things like licenses to be a PBM? And do regulations affect licenses even though you're not doing it for medicare or medicaid but it's still a license to perform as a pbm could that be a regulation or is still a law better
1: uh law is always better than a regulation because it's harder to turn back laws and also the uh, regulation can be interpreted differently and so the so could laws i mean when they're applying the law
0: But if a regulation's different, then you might just get a, here, you're not
1: doing this right. So uh, legislation is much more certainty. There's much more certainty around legislation than regulation.
0: And you said that this is in the works to try to do that for
1: commercial too. Yeah, if it was, if it got withdrawn, when the regulation got withdrawn two years ago, then Senator Braun just dropped pursuing the bill because there was no point of just doing it on the commercial side, on private side.
0: Because if the government's not even going to do it, then you're not going to get the Commercial to do it at all.
1: And you need both of them. And this is going back to last February in 2019 when the CEOs testified in the Senate finance hearing. If you notice, they all said we will lower the retail prices of our medicines if both commercial and government change the tactic of rebate contracting.
0: Yeah, because what we're seeing in a pharmacy, in my mind at least, I'm thinking, well, if they change it on the government side, they're probably going to get it back somehow on the
1: <laughs> the commercial side. That's why you need to do both. You always need to do both.
0: My dad used to say, it's like when you were building a house, you know, it's like he said, why would I take out three windows, am I only saving... <laughs> $600, but when I want to put three windows in, it's costing me $1,500. They're going to get it back someplace, right?
1: You're absolutely right. That's why you always need to do both ends because it's transferable, right? So for example, if, if the government mandates, you know, price controls on what Medicare or Medicaid pays, Well, the pharmaceutical industry will just charge more money on the commercial side, right? And make more money. And same thing with insurers. And if the insurers have to give more concessions to the government to cover Medicare patients, they're going to make money on the employer side.
0: They're going to get back somewhere else. Well, Robert, boy, thank you so much for that information. It's so cool to get it from uh, your side being in the industry. And that was really, really fascinating.
1: Well, I'm happy to have helped out. I mean, this is a complicated issue, but it's complicated for a reason because people make it complicated. When you actually go through it and try to explain it, it's being created as a complicated manner because people make money off of complicated situations.
0: Well, I've said that for years with our primary wholesaler. I'll pick up a bottle of, let's say, ibuprofen, you know, 800 milligram, you know, 500 count, however many pounds that is. And I'll say, I'll say to my wholesaler, I'll say, this is such a crime that I'm paying you guys X million dollars a year and you cannot tell me how much this bottle costs me. Every time I ask you, you have to say, well, if we do this and do this and then we get this rebate and all this kind of stuff. And I said, pharmacists aren't stupid. You guys are doing this to complicate things and to throw up smoke and mirrors. And the more you do that, the more we don't really know what we're paying and we just go ahead and do it.
1: Most healthcare professionals, physicians, pharmacists, we've all had to go through organic chemistry. If you've gone through organic chemistry and passed that class, I think you can pretty much understand anything in the world.
0: We know what's happening. All right, Robert, it was (laughs) fun talking and I look forward to staying in touch with
1: you. Same here. Bye, Mike. All right, thanks, Robert. Take care, bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelser. Please subscribe for all future episodes.